Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed for dragging yourself out of bed at zero dark 30 on the post-Australia Day hangover morning. My name is David Hoxley. I am a lecturer in the Department of Physics and Chemistry at La Trobe University. And this is my colleague, Monica Fekete, who is a chemical engineer who works partly at Monash University and also is a coffee consultant and a coffee scientist. She's the brains of the outfit. I'd first of all like to acknowledge the land on which we stand. We acknowledge the Yalukut-Willem as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. The Yalukut-Willem are the part of the Bunurong, one of the five major language groups of the greater Kulin nation. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors and their elders, past, present and to the future. So what are we going to do today? We've got an hour, and we've got a lot of stuff set up. You've seen the microscope. You've seen my PhD student. They get younger every year, don't they? Um, you've seen the reflectometer, which tells you the total dissolved solids in the coffee. And we've got all this torture gear set up here. So we're going to do a tasting. The last 15 minutes, we're going to explain a little bit about how coffee science works how the supply chain of coffee is fragile but awesome. And one of the reasons that Melbourne coffee is so good is because Australians are very good at controlling every aspect of that supply chain. And we're going to understand a little bit about how you get the stuff out of the coffee bean. It's all in there. There's a story about goats that I'll let Monica talk about in a minute. But it's all about how you beat, grind, roast and generally torture the coffee bean so that you can pull all the lovely chemicals out of it, the smell and the taste. I'll make one little admission. I'm not just interested in coffee. I'm really interested in science when it's done by non-scientists or people who don't have a PhD. So PhD stands for permanent head damage, and we've both got one and it kind of shows. But for you know, real people... Um, Baristas have a really tough gig. So I encourage you to sample the wares from over there. But the barista's in charge of bringing it all together. The barista chooses the grind. The barista chooses the beans. The barista stores the beans. And they set up the machine to extract from the coffee. But most baristas don't have a PhD in physics or chemistry. I don't know if this barista does. Ah, oh, excellent. <laughs> Ah, oh, that completely undermines my point so awesomely. <laughs> if your wrist is not an astrophysicist, <laughs> um, <laughs> then sometimes applying the scientific method is a really good thing to do. And so I, want to, I guess what I'm trying to say is that you can be a scientist without being a scientist. Everyone in a kitchen is a scientist. Does anyone remember Martha Gardner from the 70s and 80s? I actually Googled her and there's nothing on the internet about her, really. It's kind of interesting. Um, she used to say that, that cooking is chemistry and cleaning is chemistry and everyone who runs a household and cooks and stuff is also a chemist. So I won't go on anymore. I'm just simply going to introduce you to Monica Fekete, who is the coffee scientist and the director of Coffee Science Lab. Hello, welcome. So um, we usually think of coffee as this aromatic brown powder that when mixed with water somehow gets us going in the morning. But do we think of 
often where coffee comes from. And in fact, as you can see in this picture here, um, coffee grows in trees um, and is the seed of the coffee cherry fruit, which is this red fruit here. Um, the legend goes that an Ethiopian shepherd, sometime back in the day, um, noticed that his goats ate the fruit of this particular bush. Um, and the goats got really energetic and running around. Afterwards, didn't want to go to sleep. So he thought that, oh, well, I might try this cherry myself. Um, and well, the rest is history. Um, and then from Ethiopia, coffee soon spread around the rest of the world. It's grown in tropical regions around the equator called the coffee belt, and it's providing the livelihood of about 125 million people. The largest coffee-producing countries today are Brazil, Vietnam, uh, followed by Colombia and Indonesia. Um, coffee is also grown here in Australia, in Queensland, but the climate is not exactly ideal for it, so it's not the highest quality coffee that we know. Um, while demand for coffee is ever-increasing, um, coffee-growing regions around the world are threatened by climate change, such as um, floods and droughts. So something to be mindful of uh, when you're sipping that morning cup. So once the coffee cherries are harvested, the fruit pulp is removed. Um, this is the, um, I just showed you before, the um, skin of the coffee cherry. Um, this is called cascara and can be brewed up as a tea, as we will um, try in the end as well. It's actually really tasty. Um, interesting fact that the um, coffee plant has caffeine all the way through it, everywhere, um, in the leaves, in the fruit. So if you brew up this um, cascara tea, it has um, caffeine just like um, the coffee beans themselves. Of course, it's a lot lighter, um, not as concentrated. So um, this uh, coffee cherry is removed um, from the beans during the processing in the origin countries. Um, and then what we're left with is the green coffee, which is dried to about 13% moisture uh, and then packed into these um, Hessian bags that you can see behind you. Um, so when coffee arrives uh, in Australia, it's actually green and it still has about 13% moisture. So now it's the job of the roaster um, to turn those uh, green coffee beans, which actually don't smell much like um, the roasted coffee. They just have this faint grassy smell. Um, we've got some out there, you can um, have a look afterwards. Um, it's a very interesting difference um, how that green product um, in the space of about 8 to 15 minutes turns into this magical um, brown aromatic um, coffee bean that we know. So um, roasting is a really complex process, both from a physical and chemical point of view. So David will now explain you a little bit about the physics of roasting. Uh, and then I'll talk about the chemistry. Thanks, Monica. Um, hey, Jean, do you reckon you could get one of the petri dishes of the roasted beans and then one of the green beans and just sort of pass it around to people and let them have a look at it while I'm talking? Just go that way and just, just show it to people as, as they go through. Yes, yeah, stand up and do it. Good man. <laughs> Poor Jean. We didn't rehearse this at all. Um, so... There's a lot of physics in creating and extracting coffee, but without talking, Gene, maybe. <laughs> Good man. <laughs> I'm a physicist, but I'm particularly a nanotechnologist, so I'm interested to what happens to the physics to things when you have 
a large amount of surface area. And that fits in really nicely to the way that coffee is extracted. We'll talk about extraction later, at least Monica will go into detail. But I want to talk about the physics of what we do. The first thing you've got to do is heat up the beans. So you heat up your beans, they've come up in the sack. You don't always know how much moisture is in there. Roasters have got to do a lot of thinking on their feet. But they stick it into a big iron oven and they heat it up slowly in a particular sort of way to about 200 degrees centigrade and then the bean cracks. All this carbon dioxide and other volatile gases are created inside. And this cracking process is really important because it makes it porous, fibrous and brittle. It's really hard to grind green beans. They're too wet and elastic and they kind of shred. But once they've cracked, they're brittle and they've got all these voids in them, and they turn into the powder, which behaves nicely when you try and grind it and extract it. It's really important when you're grinding the coffee, to make, to, when you're roasting the coffee, to try and break down the plant cell structure. That releases the caffeine and all of the good smells and all of the good tastes, which is what you want from coffee. So in those 8 to 15 minutes of a roast, a large number of chemical reactions happen simultaneously that lead to the formation of this aromatic product that we know. One of the most important reactions is called the Maillard reaction. So um, the Maillard reaction is a typical cooking reaction that you can observe any time when you're making a toast, frying onions, or putting on a barbecue like probably you did yesterday. Um, each time, a brown color develops accompanied by a delicious aroma. So chemically, in each case, sugars and amino acids um, react to form larger molecules and at the same time re release some small, volatile, aromatic ones. Um, um, yeah. So there are about a thousand different volatiles that form during roasting. So there's a huge amount of um, chemical reactions going on. Um, but there's only a handful of these that we normally recognize as fresh coffee aroma. These are usually sulfuric compounds that by themselves don't actually smell that pleasant, um, but we associate it with um, the freshness of coffee, and these are lost during the staling process. So, back to roasting. The other important reaction is called caramelization. Um, we all know about caramel, right? Um, but in this case, so sugars react to form um, a much larger aggregate. And again, um, this is followed by the um, evolution of uh, other volatile aromas um, that we can smell um, in the air. Um, however, uh, free, while free sugars taste sweet, um, when they aggregate it together in uh, something called a caramel, uh, it actually reduces sweetness. So these large sugar aggregates are not as sweet as free sugars by themselves. But um, caramelization creates this nice nutty flavor and also the brown color um, that we associate um, with the roasted coffee. Um, caffeine um, is not affected by roasting. So whatever is there will also stay there at the end. Um, huh, you all right? <laughs> So um, there's mainly two kinds of coffee that we know of. There's coffee, Arabica and Robusta. Now, um, Arabica has about 1% caffeine, while, uh, 1 to 1.5, uh, while Robusta coffee, coffee has more, about 2% caffeine. Um, Robusta here is only really used in um, like instant coffees and uh, ready-to-drink coffee products. Um, it gives you a stronger coffee heat, however, uh, it's also... Um, 
more bitter, more harsh in taste. Arabica is more prized as a um, uh, more delicate, tasty coffee. In um, coffee shops around Melbourne, you will only be served um, Arabica coffee, hopefully. <laughs> so what levels um, um, are coffee ro roasted to? Um, as you can see, there's no one right answer. Um, when coffee is roasted really light, um, it's best to use uh, in a filter. It's also the best way to showcase the characteristics of the origin where it comes from uh, before all these delicate acids get destroyed in the roasting process. Um, what we like to drink as an espresso is usually, um, at least in a modern specialty coffee, um, it's usually a medium roast. Um, and then if you go into a really dark roast, that's more um, typical of a traditional um, European, let's say Italian or French style. So at that stage, um, the coffee can look really dark. It can even have an oily shine on the surface as the oils from the inside of the bean escape to the surface at the later stage of roasting. Um, this can, to us, it can also have a bit of a bitter, um, ashy taste. Um, but to some people, that really represents that uh, strong coffee taste um, that they are used to. So, once we've created all these great um, aromas and flavors during roasting, now we have to get them out. Um, and this process is called extraction. What is extraction exactly? Well, if I look it up in the dictionary, it tells me that it's the act or process of getting something by pulling or forcing it out. So, in chemistry, this is pretty much exactly what we do. Um, with extraction, we separate one or more uh, chemicals that we want out of a mixture of, with many other chemicals that we don't want. So, this is exactly the same thing that happens with coffee. We use water as a solvent to help with extraction. So, over time, water um, dissolves all these different flavors out of the coffee bean. But some of these chemicals actually take um, longer to dissolve than others. So when the water hits the coffee bean what, uh, or the coffee grind, uh, what dissolves first are salt, then acids, then sweetness, and then bitterness at the end. So it's really important uh, how far you extract the coffee beans. In the, if the coffee is under-extracted, it will taste a bit sour. If it's over-extracted, it will taste too bitter. Um, a nice balanced extraction uh, will actually taste quite sweet and balanced. All right. So, um, but of course, um, to be able to control um, that extraction, um, the other important factor here is um, grinding. So, uh, um, David will talk to you a little bit about the coffee grinds. So, speaking of grind, we've been showering you with information for the past 10 or 15 minutes. There will be a test at the end, by the way. You need to get your car keys back only if you pass. Um, ah, I see. They are useful. Good on, good on you for touching on. Um, are there any quick questions? We'll have a bit of a Q&A at the end, but I just thought maybe anything that Monica or I have said so far, do you want to pick up on that? Yes. So, so the, the question is, um, sometimes we hear that espresso coffee has got less caffeine than, in particular, percolated coffee. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, so um, caffeine itself um, doesn't change during roasting. So once you have the coffee beans, you can extract them either into an espresso or a percolated coffee. Um, caffeine is one of the first things that dissolves out of a coffee bean. So in fact, the, um, uh, in an espresso, because it's a very quick extraction, we get about 80% of that caffeine out. Whereas in percolated coffee, if you um, brew it for a longer time, you might get almost all the caffeine out. However, there's another thing that we have to think about in this case. So with an espresso, it's very concentrated, but we only drink about 30 milliliters of it. Whereas with uh, a filter coffee, it might be less concentrated, um, less strong in caffeine, but we drink a whole mug of it. So in the end, we can easily end up with about the same amount of caffeine. Um, that's a fantastic question. Thank you very much. That's like one of the things that Monica and I were discussing. We've got time for another couple of questions. And uh, amazing AV person whose name I've totally forgotten because I'm useless. I'm a physicist. I'm on the spectrum. What can I say? What's, Lauren, um, who's saved my butt about five times this morning, will give you a mic so that everyone can hear you if you like. Any, further, any questions? Who's got a question? Uh, yes, gentleman over there. Who actually gave me his breakfast. He gave me what he was going to eat because I haven't I eaten. I did. I did. You can't survive on coffee alone. Um, no, just you're talking. You're talking about the extraction before, um, and then the question about percolated coffee. So, percolated coffee is obviously been percolating a lot longer. So, is it always going to be more bitter as a result? Um, well, David will explain that in a moment. So, it's to do with the coffee grinds as well, as well as the time uh, we take to brew the coffee. The, the short answer is yes, but this gets into dangerous territory because people have opinions about coffee, right? And there sometimes is no right answer, especially if you're raised on percolated coffee like people in the 50s were from North America. There's a particular style of kind of European coffee almost, whereas in Australia we're used to a more um, sort of Italian style of drinking coffee. So that segues beautifully into the grind, um, it's all about the grind. Uh, I think we have another question then. Oh, did I miss it? Sorry. No, go for it, go for it. It's just a question about the uh, altitude that the coffee's grown at. Whoa. Yeah, so that's actually part of the reason why we can't grow amazing coffee in Australia at the moment. Because, um, well, coffee likes to be quite warm during the day, but then also cool at night, cool but not freezing. Um, and that temperature uh, profile is best achieved in tropical regions uh, where it's warm during the day but also warm during the night. But now if you go up to a mountain to a higher altitude, then you will find that it still gets nice and warm during the day but it cools down at night to that level that the coffee tree really likes to have. Uh, but um, as long as it's not um, below zero temperatures, um, that uh, will be the best for coffee. I didn't know that. So, just, yeah, I'm glad there are questions. Hold it till the end, because we're going to, while we're doing the tasting, um, there'll be another Q&A, because I want to try and keep sort of to time. Um, don't forget it, though. So, grinding. When you're grinding the coffee bean, you've roasted it so that it'll fracture and form this nice kind of powder. It's not all the same size of particle. In fact, for an espresso, you want a combination of small and large particles so you can pack it down really tight. So if you think about cement, concrete, that you use to build buildings with, it's a mixture of aggregate, which is small and large particles, and then the cement kind of fills in the gaps between them and you get this really solid structure. 
Espresso coffee ground is a little bit like that. You've got a combination of particle sizes. If you look through the microscope at the end of the session at the ground coffee, you can see that it's this sort of sticky mixture of tiny little particles that some are too small to see, and then these big kind of woody stumps. So for espresso, you've got a very short, sharp process. It's 30 seconds long. You put hot water through at 98 or so degrees centigrade, and that pulls out a lot of oils and fats that normally wouldn't dissolve very easily in water. And that's why you get the crema on top of your coffee. That's a really good sign. It means you've got lots and lots of oils, and that will give you a really intense and flavorful experience. It's quick, so you've got pressure to get the stuff out, but you don't have much time, which means your grind has got to be very fine. There's a different way to approach it, though, and that's the way that we've got behind us, where you grind the coffee a little bit coarser, and you don't force the water through. You just let it come through and trickle through by gravity. Now, if you've made a really fine aggregate that doesn't want to let the water through, then it'll just sort of sit there on top and won't percolate through in time. If you make them grind coarser, then the water will be able to get through. And it'll extract more gently and gives you a very different sort of flavor profile, as you'll find out. So what we're going to do is, we, at the end, with the tasting, we've gone from the finest grind that we can grind to the coarsest grind we can grind. And that will show you the difference between the sour and bitter ends of the spectrum, the over-extracted and the under-extracted. He says, looking at his notes... How much coffee, how much caffeine will kill you? This is an important question. If we're asking, sir. A bucket of coffee. So it would be like five litres. I reckon if you had five, ten litres of espresso, I think you'd be in hospital, but I suspect your stomach would reject it before you got that far. Uh, This, so, so caffeine poisoning depends if you've got pre-existing conditions. But 10 grams of caffeine, that's a lot of caffeine. If you think about the price of cocaine per gram, imagine that much caffeine. It's quite a lot of white powder to get into your body. So some of you are laughing at that. I know who you are. Um, are we ready to do tasting type things? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. Okay. So I'd like to introduce um, my other amazing helper, Marshall Hoxley of the um, shrimp. Marshall's done the grinding this morning and is now going to boil the water and pour it in and do all that sort of stuff. Let's have that question, sir. Thank you for hanging on to it. Yes. All right. Um, uh, I, know, uh, I know that uh, like for coffee, it's best grown in a place that's like warm during the day and then cool at night. And that's why it's usually like high altitude in tropical regions. Uh, you sure that... So, you sure like there's we don't have anything like that near the top of the Great Dividing Range, near the, like near the north part? I would have thought so, Monica. Um, I think it's still a bit cold there. Um, like think about going up all the way to Queensland. I've seen coffee grown there um, near the um, uh, what's the name of the river? <laughs> Daintree, yes. Um, so yeah, there's um, some smaller mountains there, but not quite like the like you have in South America, for example. Yeah, not. It's either not in the right place or not tall enough. Yeah. <laughs> However, there are native coffees. So most of the 
coffees that you see are from Ethiopia and the story that goes with that is that the Ethiopian guys saw goats eating this particular bush and the goats started to hop around awfully vigorously and they thought, this is interesting, what's going on here? And they chased it down. So most of the bean varieties that we use around the world are traced back to Ethiopia. But they're not the only sorts of coffee. There are native coffees in South America and there is an Australian native coffee, which I believe no one's ever actually brewed. <laughs> well, so I was only recently Seriously? discovered... No, no one's you can be the first, man. Well, I know it's uh, somewhere in a herbarium, no. but I don't know if uh, people have actually brewed it up. It's called Cofea Brassi and it's grown in the um, York Peninsula, but it, it grows there uh, in the native forest. So there's a challenge, man. Report back. If we achieve nothing else from today, if we get some... It's 2018. How can we have done it yet? I, 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 yeah, I don't know. <laughs> this, is, this is coffee. It's just full of these amazing things. All right, we better share the mic. Who else has got a question? Oh, up the back. Fantastic. I thought we can hear it. I know, but everyone else can't. <laughs> um, you've spoken about the, the, like the physical science of making coffee, but to me... Coffee's so subjective, there's no science in it. It's like it, all the way through the process right to the point of the person drinking it, there's no scientific rigour or, you know, what tastes good to you doesn't taste good to anyone else. So do you ever see science playing a role in that? There's a clip that I was going to show, but I goofed up the um, internet part of it. So here's your homework. Yes. Google Breaking Bad Coffee Scene. Series 3, episode 6. <laughs> so basically these two in very, very good research chemists who are making a lot of very good meth um, meet and bond over a coffee extraction. It's a fantastic thing. So this is a, this is a very interesting question, which, to be honest, I kind of felt the same way when I started with Monica. And Monica will give you her take on it in a sec. But it's true that the processes are complex, but when you find out what people like, you can usually say, okay, it's this balance of this sort of chemical and that sort of chemical, this much tannin, that much ketone, that much ester. And so you can still have the subjectivity. It's like wine. Some people like sparkling whites, some people like boiled red gum stump reds. But we can describe them in, and so it doesn't mean, you can, you can then say, okay, this is what you like in a wine, let's make a wine that suits your taste. Or at least you can describe it in a way that people will know, okay, this is a coffee I'm going to like, this is a coffee I should avoid. One of the companies that we've worked with, which I won't name, has, their roaster has got a challenge. The beans that come off the boat have varying moisture levels, and so the roasting algorithms have to be different. And this was a screenwriter, not a PhD chemical engineer, and he's very, very good at what he does, and he's got these incredibly complicated spreadsheets where he's done these experiments and he's tried to narrow down the parameters. So we've been working with him to try and refine his processes because you've got five to ten things that vary in each uh, batch of beans and that you can control and if you change one it affects all the others and that's the sort of thing that gets us really excited. So I find that um, you know what you like is subjective but if you find a coffee that you like you will go back for it every day right um, but if let's say you go back to your favorite cafe one day and they give you a coffee that's completely different to what you what your favorite is, then you might be a little bit upset. So what we're really trying to achieve here with science, we're not trying to tell you what the best coffee is. We're trying to help to make coffee more consistent so that you can get the same result every time. And there's a lot of um, chemical engineering and physics going into that. 
Uh, yes, thank you. Um, with the coffee beans, they, is it true that they stay fresher if, if you don't grind them? And also, what's the best way to keep them fresh? Because, like, I've read that there's the, f- the fridge, there's the dark cupboard. Uh, right. And one more. In that, and when you, if you're grinding at home, because I, I believe it's fresher if you use it, um, how do you regulate the grind? Good questions. They're the right questions to be asking. Absolutely. Um, So, how you keep coffee fresh? Um, The main enemy of roasted coffee is oxygen. So, um, as much as you can keep it away from air, uh, the better off you are. Um, However, coffee already comes packaged in whatever bag they package it in. Um, And it's usually designed in a way that it's got um, multiple layers that um, shield it from light, moisture, and oxygen as much as possible. However, when you open it, the air goes in. Um, So, the best way um, for you is to just buy smaller bags of coffee um, and use it um, over the next um, week or so or a couple of weeks. in terms, you can put it in the fridge and then it will in the freezer, uh, and then it, if you want to keep it for longer. So let's say if you accidentally bought too much coffee, then you can um, try to keep it fresh for for longer in the freezer. Um, but you don't want to get the moisture near it either. Um, in terms of grinding, um, we have this coffee grinder here, oh yeah, up there. Um, so you should be able to change the grind setting on that, and then it's up to. Um, your um, experimentation of, of what you like. What we normally say is that when you're making an espresso coffee, is that what you're making at home? Uh, plunger. Okay, so that would be a little bit different. Plunger grind is quite um, coarse, ideally, um, so much coarser than uh, an espresso. So um, on this um, grinder I can show you afterwards, um, it's one of the coarsest settings that you would use for, um, for a plunger. Um, espresso takes a much finer grind. But if you buy ground coffee in the shop, it's usually ground for espresso, um, so it won't make a very nice plunger coffee. Um, so, yes, and for... Uh, sorry? Yeah, so it's, it will be much fresher uh, and you can control your grind uh, much nicer. It will always take um, a while to figure out what your best preference is, but then once you have it, you can stick to it. I suggest that you do exactly this experiment. Get your grinder, set it to all the different settings, make yourself a succession, get your mates around, make a whole lot of coffee and write some tasting notes. And then once you've tasted the difference between them all, one of them will leap out at you. So when Monica and I ran this yesterday, there was two particular grinds that both of us liked, but they weren't the same grind. We disagreed about what the optimum grind size was. And that's your subjectivity right there. Um, I should do a shout-out to Marshall. Marshall's actually a histologist, a medical scientist, who's reinvented himself as a fancy cake decorator. (laughs) So spectrum cakes, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Um, If you want... If you want very, very good sculpted unicorns and all that sort of stuff, Marshall's the fondant king. Um, but he's agreed to help us out here today with a little bit of um, uh, basic. But scientists are everywhere, I guess. We're like this kind of ant army, that you know, baristas and cake decorators. Jean, hi. This is just a question. What would happen if you roasted and made coffee 
inside its little cocoon thingy, my bob. Well, that would be like the smallest uh, George Clooney Nespresso micropod you could get, wouldn't it? If you could somehow find a way, and I reckon that a biological process would be the way, so that you kept the shell, outside shell of the coffee bean and kept the powder inside, then it would be the smallest possible unit of ground coffee you could have. It would therefore, by definition, be the freshest. And then if you could just put it through any sort of grinder, it would release the beautiful powder inside, and that could actually be the freshest coffee imaginable. (laughs) The coffee scientist is sceptical here. I think if you took the whole cherry off the tree and put that in a roasting machine, that you will find that the whole thing would just get burned. Um, because, you know, the coffee fruit is still, um, still very wet. Um, so, first of all, it would dry out, um, and then it would start yeah, burning. It's, but that's that sort of thinking that's going to make Australia the agricultural and food superpower that it deserves to become, along with our native coffee. That got me thinking, um, you know how you, the saying is that if you want to really taste a coffee, you don't have milk in it. Can you explain why milk tastes so good in coffee? Well, or it's the most common thing that you don't have orange juice in coffee. Or... Well, actually, I heard of that yeah. as well. I've, I've heard that some people do that. It sounds terrible. Um, but yeah, milk has natural sweetness. The so milk has um, uh, milk sugars in there. Um, so when you add it to the coffee, it's actually... Um, emphasizes or works together very nicely with the with the darker roasts of the the like nutty and chocolatey flavors so it's a little bit like a chocolate milkshake um, <laughs> and uh, if you if you want to drink coffee black um, a very nice way to try it is um, through filter so with a coarse grind um, and that will end up actually like a, a bit more like a tea and that's, um, when I first tried it, I thought that, you know, filter coffee was this American-style drip coffee that they make from really dark roast, fine ground, turns into this kind of strong, bitter liquid. Um, but when you do it the proper way, you take a, a lightly roasted um, coffee bean, um, grind it coarsely, put it through something like the Crevel dripper we have here, it will actually end up really nice. So it's a good way to try. It's a good way to appreciate those um, coffee acids that um, people talk about. Yeah, one, one more question. No, no, I was going to say that because that's such a perfect segue into the tasting. Marshall, I gave Marshall the wrong size kettle. It's exactly 177 mils too, too low in capacity. I'll get stabbed for that later. Um, so we've got three lots of, five lots of grind, so two beakers. Now, don't worry, I know any of you who have worked in chem labs are probably going to feel a bit strange about drinking from a beaker. My, one of my bosses actually has a mug made out of a beaker and every time he takes a sip of it in a meeting, everyone kind of crosses their legs and just doesn't feel right about it. But it's, it's very hipster. It's, it's, uh, it's may, 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 maybe it's just a chemist thing. Um, yeah. So if I've got this right, Marshall, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that to uh, the audience's right, we've got the, the finest the fine grind yeah. and to the audience's left, we've got the coarsest grind. So you can sort of see it actually. It's very impressive if the light's coming from behind it. Um, you can really see the difference in, in, in colour. So I would invite people to come up. We've got espresso one-shot tasting mugs and sort of think about the, the beginning note and the end note and how it all goes through that kind of experience. So put on your wine snob hat for this one. My advice would be start at the left and move to the right 
because that's a milder taste. Is Monica? Is that sort of sensible? Yeah. yeah. Um, now probably more pleasant as well. But yeah. Yeah, Marshall's trying to let me know he's grinding his teeth now because like, why did you have to start with that one? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it'll be fine. That'll have, that'll have only got two minutes to go, right? Yeah. So um, can I invite people to come up and have a little bit of coffee? Um, so it's this is a medium roast general purpose. It's the house coffee that they have here. It's probably a little bit darker than you'd normally use for a filter. Um, But this is where, again, your subjectivity comes in. There's no law that says you can't use, you know, Vittoria coffee, which is like the asphalt of coffee. It doesn't make it bad. I'm not bagging it, but it's very... It's a certain sort of coffee, right? You know what I'm saying. So... um, what, what, one, one, one way you can do is if you put the beans in your hand and look at the surface, if the light reflects off the surface of the bean and it's really dark, you know that it's been worked pretty hard in the roasting. That's not what you would normally use for a filter. You'd usually use something that's sort of a, a, a medium roast but, but not as light as, as an espresso roast. Did I get all that right? So, yes, you use light roast for filter and dark roast for espresso. Yeah. What do I know? <laughs> so this, this is definitely a medium roast, so it's right in the middle. See what you think. Um, and again, I invite you to compare it to an espresso after you've had the filter because that'll be a completely different taste profile again. All right. Who wants to be first? Go on. That's it. Mm-hmm. Round of applause for our first volunteer. Okay, so... Everyone's uh, going to watch yeah, to see if she dies. Yeah, we can get started on that one. That's, the other one is just exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah, so well, actually, no, we, we'll, pour, we'll pour it for you. 